Welcome to TV7 Israel's podcast. We invite you to listen and share our latest content from Israel and the region. Shalom from Jerusalem. This is TV7 with another edition of Middle East Review with my good co-host, Colonel Reserve, Dr. Eran Lerman. Eran, how are you? Uh, busy. <laughs> <laughs> so another busy month here Indeed. in the Middle East and, uh, and beyond. And uh, Iran, I would like to concentrate on two topics uh, with this edition. First of all, is the region at large with a focus on Iran again. Unfortunately, we see that there is no movement, no progress in uh, Vienna with the JCPOA. The Iranians are just benefiting from this uh, stalemate because as they progress and um, actually deflect any pressure, I don't know if there is any uh, pressure on them. And of course, what are the ramifications to the region, of course, to, to Israel? Uh, at the same time, we see continued military uh, activity in Syria and also in the Syria-Iraq uh, borders by some uh, uh, forces that uh, nobody claims responsibility to it. Armed forces of Liechtenstein. Yes. <laughs> what is interesting now, which is maybe a new policy in Washington, unlike during Trump, now Washington at some points uh, want to make sure, and they declare that it wasn't them. Mm. Quite uh, interesting. <clears throat> uh, and of course, the Iranians are continued to attempt to entrench in uh, Syria, and of course in uh, Lebanon with Hezbollah. So... Um, First, Iran, what, what is your take? It's what, uh, I mean, on the two issues with Iran, the uh, JCPOA and the region. And the region. Well, um, I think we are really at the, on the cusp of major events, but this has been a dead month in the sense that, uh, um, as, as one uh, Israeli uh, uh, journal, journalist described, everyone blinked. The Americans offered the Iranians too much in the attempt to get them back to the table. And then they realized they face a very uh, tough player with Raisi backed by Khamenei. And um, there are question marks uh, rising in Washington, uh, certainly uh, in, in Jerusalem, about the, the wisdom of proceeding with the JCPOA negotiations when the reality has changed beyond recognition. The Iranians have... Uh, Cross the threshold of enriching to 60%. 60% has absolutely no civilian use. Um, everyone knows that. The, uh, the three European players have said as much. Uh, Grossi has said as much. Everyone knows that this is one step away from becoming a threshold military uh, nuclear power. So uh, we may face very dramatic events in the not too distant future. But this has been a, a period of, of watching and waiting and thinking uh, in the wake of uh, Prime Minister Bennett's uh, visit in Washington. Uh, regionally, I think it's quite significant that uh, the United States military is once again um, acting in close coordination with its traditional allies in the region. The uh, joint patrol of the Fifth Fleet uh, in the Red Sea. The, with Israel. With Israel. Um, is quite uh, significant. Um, and Israel is now a full, uh, fully-fledged uh, part of the CENTCOM system, rather than historically being the odd man out uh, belonging to the uh, European command. Um, a huge 
Bright Star exercise in Egypt um, without Israeli participation, but uh, still. But uh, this is the CENTCOM's uh, major exercise. And uh, all of this indicates a realization that, first of all, you play with your friends against your enemies, and Iran is still an enemy, and its purposes are hostile. And that realization is the basis for a discussion of how do we go forward. Israel has indicated that it will be willing to live with a renewed JCPOA if it's a if it closes down all the loopholes that were left in the previous version. Uh, but if it fails, and it is, uh, there's a high likelihood that this will happen, then we are on a course for a confrontation that could engulf uh, much of the region. And the Iranian activity in, in Syria and, and in Yemen uh, is designed to pose a threat to Israel. Um, we can handle both. The dramatic angle will be in Lebanon. And there, a, uh, the, the prospect of a full-scale confrontation is, cannot be ruled out. So the situation, or lack thereof, of any engagements uh, with the Iranians now in Vienna, um, how do you see it proceed? I mean, would it be possible at all to go back to the JCPOA since uh, I would, you know, you said yourself how Iran has progressed. So maybe it's just trying to close the barn after the horses ran out. So uh, is it, uh, let's say, legitimate or is it logical for the P5 plus one to try to re-engage re with the Iranians on the basis of the JCPOA or signing it? Or is it possible or is it feasible to have a new agreement that would replace JCPOA adjusting its uh, parameters to the new situation. Well, that, of course, would be the logical conclusion. And uh, Secretary Blinken has said as much. And, and I think uh, uh, at the highest level of the administration, in the wake of Afghanistan, I think there's a realization that essentially surrendering to Iran's ambitions would be uh, far, far too dangerous, not only geopolitically and strategically, but also possibly in terms of America, the, the domestic scene uh, in, in America. Uh, a, a presidency that comes across as weak in the face of enemies, and Iran is an enemy, um, would face very serious political could face very serious political consequences in the uh, in the midterm election and beyond. So um, I think there's a there, this is a period of recalculating. I think the administration would and and its European allies, uh, the British have just come uh, into a new kind of close alliance with the United States. Uh, the, the French are very firm on the Iranian issue, have been for years, and the Germans will tag along, although they are very shy about war. What can I say? If I have to choose between Germans who love war and Germans who don't, I've made my choice. But, from a historical perspective. <laughs> from a historical perspective. But, but having said so, um, I think the U.S. and its European allies will present the, to the Iranians a, a demanding 
position that would require them to walk back swiftly from what they've been doing in the last few months. But the likelihood of this failing uh, to cut the ice in Tehran and, uh, and uh, a full-scale confrontation, which could go, well, if not kinetic, then in, in any case uh, uh, um, it would require active... Covert. Uh, covert uh, action to, to uh, actually stop the Iranian project. That is a very likely scenario, looking down the, uh, the road with all the implications that this carries with it. This is the central question in the region looking uh, towards the uh, final month of, of 2021 and, and beyond. Indeed. So, Iran, in your analysis, how far will the allies, the P5 plus 1, led by the United States, how far would they be willing to go in terms of pressuring Iran? Would they go to other options, as uh, uh, President Biden mentioned in his meeting with Prime Minister uh, Bennett Which? last month, will they come to a point where they will tell the Ira- Iranians, either you come and sign on JCPOA or a, uh, let's say, a uh, JCPOA.2.2, or will they be able to be telling them you sign or else? And how would the Iranians react to either one of these scenarios? Well, the, the, the Russians have always been free riders here. And what becomes significant, because they really don't want a nuclear Iran to their south, but they've always relied on other, others to do their work for them. What becomes a very significant element is where China comes down. The Chinese have made various steps uh, recently. Uh, not only the uh, signing of this large framework agreement on economic cooperation with, with Iran, but also, for example, the, the full uh, membership of Iran in the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the SC, uh, SCO, which uh, is, is a very significant signal. Um, they are coming down on, on the side of Iran amidst growing tensions between them and the United States and the uh, tightening of American relations with the Quad, uh, Japan, Australia, India, so um, the other members of the Quad with the United States. So um, this is Ira- this, the Iranian question is being drawn into an even larger uh, geopolitical game. Having said so, I don't think the Chinese really have the intention of defending the Iranians or the capacity of defending the Iranians in the crisis. If both Tehran and Beijing are faced with a credible military threat, things could change. The Iranians know that there is a line they shouldn't cross. This is why they let uh, Grossi come and, and renew some of the Inspection the IEA activity, guy, yeah. the IEA uh, director, uh, to to renew some of uh, of the uh, inspection activities. It's they were throwing them a morsel, so to speak, to the international community. Uh, they they know that there's a line they they should be careful not to cross, but I. I I'm reduced to hoping, because I'm not sure, but I, I hope that the, the United States administration, at least, is not, um, uh, let's say, tempted to treat this as a, as a sufficient cause for retreating in the face of Iranian demands. 
And of course, Iran, there is a precedent. Back in 2003, under Bush 43, President Bush, W, uh, in 2003, after the invasion to Iraq, there was a law, there was a suspension, a voluntary suspension by the Iranians uh, of their uh, nuclear, illegal nuclear uh, program. So they do yield to credible pressure. The question is, will it be really well understood in Washington, and it not, if not in Washington, at least in the European uh, capitals? And as you mentioned, it seems like France is, uh, I would say, the, the more uh, aggressive among all the, the P5 no, plus so one. So is Johnson's Britain, I should think. Uh, but much depends on Israel, because uh, we need to be in a position to say, look, uh, whatever happens, we are not going to allow these people to have the bomb. Uh, President Biden has given his word now uh, that uh, Iran will not have the bomb. Um, but we may be the, those who will have to, to deliver um, on the basis of what we call the Begin Doctrine. It goes back 40 years. In Iran, that begs another question. Uh, we know that in uh, 2011, 2012, there was what was perceived as a credible uh, military option by Israel against Iran, which may have, you know, in retrospect, have pushed all the sides, Iran on the one hand and the P5 plus one, to the JCPOA. Now, uh, there are more than uh, one uh, testimony that... Uh, actually Israel's capability since has been degraded. Is it uh, still a viable, uh, there is a viable military option with a real credible threat to the Iranians, which could come to um, realization in a short period of time? Well, I made it a rule for myself never to go into the details of potential military operations. Um, I believe that... Um, what, whatever we can do uh, can be done better by an international coalition. But there is, ultimately, there is an Israeli option. There are certain things that Israel does today better. Uh, our intelligence gathering is more penetrating. The Iranians have found out in various places and occasions just how deep our intelligence penetration could be. And um, in any case, um, we are not talking about the full destruction of the entire system. There are certain choke points which, if disabled, could uh, put the project back uh, in terms of years. Even when we went to Baghdad, in, uh, to the Osirak in 81, people assumed that this is gaining two or three yeah, years. Right. And it's been 40 years and Iraq doesn't have the bomb. And uh, with the Syrian story in 2007, which was acknowledged only three years ago. Uh, again, it uh, wasn't a there was no guarantee that Assad will not try again, but he didn't, as far as we know. So uh, um, it is a risk that Israel will might have to take. Well, Israel has made it no secret, and uh, Lieutenant General uh, Kohavi, the chief of staff, uh, mentioned it uh, quite publicly that... Uh, the military is uh, refreshing its, uh, let's say, um, contingency plans, getting Indeed. it out of the drawers. And uh, the military has received a huge uh, increase 
in the budget, probably the largest since 1973, after the Yom Kippur War. More or less, yes. So uh, I think that should signal both to Iran and the international community, especially in Washington, that Israel is serious about it. So now we'll have to just wait and see if indeed there will be any effect, a significant one, on coming together to any kind of an agreement, which I think all sides agree that a political solution is much better than any other option. But it seems like today the initiative is with Tehran, and it's like their call which way to go. Indeed. And meanwhile, uh, we wait to see the impact in Lebanon, on one hand, of Hassan Nasrallah bringing in Iranian oil to the benefit of the Lebanese people, but also the seething anger under the surface of many Lebanese, which we saw the months before after the, uh, the rocket incident, uh, against the way in which their country was brought to ruin by uh, uh, Iranian interests, because at the end of the day, Hassan Nasrallah may be a Lebanese citizen, but he is a foreign agent. He acts on behalf of the interests of a foreign power that does not have the best interests of Lebanon in, in, in mind. So this could have a bearing on developments if we come to a point of crisis. And everything else is at the end of the day trivial. Uh, Assad will not commit national suicide on behalf of Iran. Yemen uh, can be a launching pad for some things flying in our direction, but it cannot change the strategic balance. The key will be Hezbollah's position in Lebanon and Israel's ability to neutralize it. And the question is, will Hezbollah and Nasrallah, the head of Hezbollah, will they be willing, when push comes to shove, to make, commit a suicide for the Iranians' interests? Well, uh, I don't think he has much choice in the matter. He works for the Iranians, not with them, for them. Mm -hmm. A different proposition. Hamas works with the Iranians, not for them. Palestinian Islamic Jihad in Gaza works for, for them. So these are proxies. Uh, so uh, they can try to embroil Gaza through Palestinian Islamic Jihad. And then the question is, what will Hamas do? There's been one round before in which Page fired and Hamas stayed out. Uh, so that could be an indication of, of what's coming. Um, in the case of, uh, of Lebanon, uh, it's not so much a question of what Hassan Nasrallah will decide, but what will happen within Lebanese society, within the dynamics of Lebanese society, to the extent that it still has any legs to stand on, um, uh, putting pressure on the ground against Hezbollah, and deterring them from dragging the country into what would be utter ruin. Indeed. Well, I guess, unfortunately, still in this edition of the Middle East Review, we do not see an outcome to what will happen with the Iranian problem, but it's still open and hopefully it will go north and not south. But in, in talking about south, we have some very positive signs to speak about. The, uh, the summit in Sharm el-Sheikh between Sisi and Bennett has been uh, a, a, a remarkable event. in Amman between Bennett and King Abdullah of Jordan. Which was less overt, um, less of a celebration, but still uh, Israel is rebuilding its relations. Uh, here there is a very clear case in which there's no real change in policy. We were... Uh, we had common interests before, but there's a change in style. 
not in re, but in modo, as the Romans used to say. That's right. And the interaction with the Jordanians is very significant with the Egyptians. Uh, The EMGF is increasingly uh, becoming not only uh, an economic uh, club, but a strategic uh, instrument. Uh, The French are there, the Greeks, the uh, Cypriots. This is no longer just about what we used to call the Middle East, the small Eastern Mediterranean, but Egypt is very much grounded there. It has vested interest, together with Israel, in countering the uh, Turkish-Libyan map of uh, the EEZ in the Eastern Mediterranean. And uh, and there's a whole range of commonalities now uh, with our Egyptian uh, neighbors, and I could almost say uh, friends in Cairo, uh, and, and so you have the Israeli flag uh, visible on Egyptian soil in an event like this, which is unprecedented since the days of, uh, of the peace uh, treaty. And the Egyptian and, and Egypt Air flying or uh, scheduled to fly to Ben-Gurion mm-hmm. with their tail uh, flag, which for years they didn't. They had this fiction called Air Sinai, which will white planes with no markings uh, doing the runs between Tel Aviv and Cairo. Um, It's over. It's over. And that was more than symbolic then that the Egyptians, for the first time, have used the Israeli flag very prominently in the meeting between Assisi and Bennett in Sharm el-Sheikh. And definitely we see that uh, the progress in the alliances that Israel has carved in the region and I think it's very uh, pertinent to that end to mention, of course, the one year to the Abraham Indeed. Accord. And uh, we see that uh, with the n- new uh, uh, changes and governments in Washington and in Jerusalem, the accord continues to gain momentum. And bring be robust. Absolutely. Bring absolutely. So again, we see that the interests of the countries in the region reign supreme. Um, maybe for the first time in many, many years. And our Palestinian friends had to um, console themselves with the short-lived adventure of the six escapees from jail, (laughs) which humiliated the Israeli prison service, but actually at the end of the day um, boosted the the reputation of the Israeli intelligence services and the IDF. So deterrence has been... Restored. Restored and maybe even strengthened. To some extent, indeed. Because this is ultimately what matters. Intelligence and military capability. Hopefully they will do a real uh, overall of the prison system in Israel, which uh, I guess begs it very much. Yeah, the the, um, comparison with the Shawshank Redemption was a bit (laughs) premature. (laughs) So the Palestinians can can use their spoons, I think, to eat their soup. So, right. So as we bring the Palestinian issue very succinctly, um, we are uh, celebrating, if I can say celebrating, but we are mentioning 20 years, I mean, in two days, 20 years for the Durban Conference. Durban, which is a uh, attractive uh, city in South Africa, but it became notoriously uh, known because of the Durban Conference. The Durban Conference started with very good and lofty ideas of uh, fighting uh, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, xenophobia, racism. Racism, mainly racism. And it was hijacked. Behold, hijacked by, again, the Palestinians. Anti-Semitism was e- erased. 
And they turned the entire platform, which was going to be for human rights, as a juggernaut of political warfare against Israel back in 2001. Now we are uh, mentioning the 20 years, so there is another conference, but there is a big difference. Uh, this uh, time, uh, less countries are going to join. At least 30, 31 countries are boycotting it. And who sure are the enough. countries that boycott it? It's the significant countries in the international community, which are the Western countries, the decent countries. And hopefully this will pull the sting out of this very, very nefarious uh, conference, which started basically the political warfare of the Palestinians against Israel. Not only they hijacked the, um, the agenda, to the detriment of all those who really need it, whether it's in Africa and refugees all over the world, uh, just for their ambitions to uh, discomfit and um, isolate Israel. So what is well, your take on that? Well, um, the BDS campaign has gained some ground in some places. and of course, quite worried about uh, voices at the far left of the U.S. Democratic Party, like uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez calling for uh, uh, an end to arms sales to Israel, things like that. that, that that's, they, have, they have made some uh, headway in places. Uh, they've used uh, intersectionality to, uh, to promote the Durban agenda. Uh, effectively, and and and, and, and you cannot even have a conversation, right? Because if you are a white privileged Jew, you're not entitled to even speak under the the rules of cancel culture, woke, and and, and intersectionality. So and yes, the there Palestinian is a problem. Perspective: Everything is Israel. You talk about climate change; the Palestinians bring up it's Israel's. Yeah, and uh, women, women's rights, women's get, rights, uh, famine in Africa is Israel. That's and, the intersectionality. And, 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 that's, and, and that, of course, is an absurdity. I mean, uh, you, you got a glimpse into what conditions really are in Israeli jails through this story, so you know how uh, different it is. And, and the Arab world, in the Arab world, they know it. They made the comparisons of what it looks like in an Egyptian or a Syrian jail. So, or, um, or a Palestinian jail or, or a, a Hamas jail. Any Palestinian would take Israeli jail over Hamas jail in Gaza or Palestinian so, so authority. All these accusations of racism when an Israeli government has a, an Arab party in it and an African-born uh, minister in it, uh, these, these are absurdities. Uh, but absurdities have ruled uh, the international domain for much too long. We've seen this in the UN for years. Um, and, and we saw this with, uh, with the hijacking of, uh, of Durban. At the end of the day, it's been a futile exercise because you cannot take Israel out of the econo world economic system because you cannot take the Intel chips out of people's computers <laughs> and they are made in uh, Kiryat Gat. Well, this sums it up for us for this edition. Thank you so much for joining uh, TV7's Middle East uh, Review. Until the next time. Thank you for joining us in another TV7 Israel podcast. For more content, visit our website at tv7israelnews.com or follow us on social media.